Hey there, Internet. I can't know for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that you woke up this morning thinking, hey, if only there was a place I could hear a bunch of cool people talk about video games. Well, then we've got a show for you. From developer interviews to casual conversation, from exciting indie titles to fresh takes on your favorite games, this is the Gamers with Glasses Podcast. Hi, folks. This is the Gamers with Glasses show, and I'm Christian Haynes, and I'm joined tonight by Don Everhart. Hello. And Nate Schmidt. Hi. Eat your vegetables. Don't eat your vegetables. They're really overrated. Don, what's going on? Hot opinion. Uh, Well, I I don't have a a lot of massive hot takes. I just have, as usual, a lot of different video games that I've been playing. Although weirdly for me, in the last week, I've only actually been playing about three instead of 20. Dun, dun, dun. Nate, what's up? (laughs) So I said, eat your vegetables. And then my dog just freaked out in the living room. So, (laughs) which is funny because she really likes vegetables, um, like a lot, like a really weird amount for a dog. Um. I don't know. Maybe all dogs love vegetables and I just don't know about it. I feel like she likes vegetables a lot. Um, I made I made kimchi today, uh, which was an important vegetable related thing that I did. Um, And I also cooked some veggie burgers and put some uh, uh, pickled daikon on that that I'd done the day before that I got from my uh, CSA. And yeah, that should that pretty much catches you guys up on the the vegetable related uh, parts of my parts of my week. That's that's what I've done. Oh, and I and I killed uh, I beat Melania an hour ago. Oh, an hour okay. ago, no less. Wow, yeah. you're, you're you're fresh off of victory. No, I'm fresh off of vegetables for the most part. But it, it was also that was a little bit of that was a little bit of what happened today. Am I right? Are, are people the- vegetables considered fresh vegetables? They are when I do it. <laughs> is Melania the last boss? In no. no, actually, okay. just the hardest. So, boss. <laughs> yes, the 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 dumb thing is that, like, Melania is totally optional. I mean, not necessarily. No, I think it, you could really say totally optional. There's no reason to go there if you want to just play to the end of the game. Um. But uh, I I got there and I got up to where she was and I knew the legends and I spent many hours of my life on on that. And that culminated in, you know, a brief period of some 
uh, emotional satisfaction earlier this afternoon and now it's over and I feel just as bad about everything else as I did before I before I did <laughs> temporary <laughs> video game fleeting it's a fleeting feeling note to self don't bother with millennia <laughs> no how many hours uh, did, did you did, would you say that uh, you spent on on this? Oh, dude, I don't know. I I, I think wait on Melania specifically or on Elden Ring? Uh, Melania specifically down down in uh, where I understand with, with the Halig tree or Halig. Yeah, tree? yeah, 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 yeah. No, I. So I want to say, and these numbers are going to sound like I really remember them, but I'm actually just pulling them out of my ass. I, I want to say that my timer read about 120 when I got to Melania and then it read 133 when I, when I beat her. But that's because I also took long detours. Like I got annoyed. And so oh, right. I went and did Moog, uh, Lord of blood. And I went and did some stuff in the Capitol and down in the sewers in the Capitol. And, uh, I actually did, I got to Melania before I got to the fire giant. So I actually did the fire giant and crumbling Faramazula as well. So now that I think about it, I actually did a whole lot of things like, so after each little, you know, uh, point after each little checkpoint, I'd go and I'd try again, right? And I'd swing mm-hmm. at Melina a couple more times and I'd get angry. And so then I'd go find something else to do <laughs> and then I'd come back hey. and I'd try again. And But yeah, it was a process. It was a process. That is an appealing part of Elden Ring design and maybe it's most appealing part in many ways to me is is like, oh, this this isn't working out. Oh, I just remembered I have six other things to do scattered around this enormous place. Uh, and I'll just do those for a little bit. Oh, look, I've, I've done a... I did, where was I again? Oh, right. I was, I was fighting these two jerks. Okay, I'll, I'll go back and do that a few more times. Yeah, all right. Uh, oh, still isn't working. Uh, well, it's a good thing I just remembered I had these other six things I need to do. I'll, <laughs> I'll yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, which... Yeah, I I feel like these bosses, what they what they did was they took that as an excuse or a reason, maybe a good reason to, I think, toughen up the bosses a fair degree. I think if this was like a, your your traditional sort of Dark Souls Bloodborne type game where you had like, this is the way to go and this is the barrier to entry for everything else that follows. I think it would be unplayable, honestly. I think everybody would have bounced off of it like Christian anticipated in our last podcast. And now Elden Ring has sold more than Call of Duty and Christian has to drink a bottle of ketchup. We agreed on this last time. And I don't care whether you have ketchup in your house or not. Do you have mustard? I'll accept mustard. Mayonnaise? Don't. We don't know. What condiments do you eat, Christian? We actually are a condiment-free household. I think, I think I'm being led along. A, I, I find that hard here. to believe. <laughs> I think I think I'm being told in an in inaccuracy. I'm being to told be, something that's untrue. To be fair, to be eat a fair, jar of relish on air, Christian Haynes. To be fair, I'm not positive <laughs> that most players did not, in fact, bounce hard off of Elden oh, Ring. Oh, my God. Based on charts that I am looking at right now. <laughs> oh, he's got charts, About 
concurrent players on Steam and the dips. Now that's all, that's all the data I have available. Are, are concurrent players' charts simply good for punchlines? Or do they have any merit as data points beyond assessing gas games and their hilarious failure? For example, <laughs> uh, the latest Platinum Yes, I, that's what exactly what I was thinking of. When Kotaku interviewed the last player. The one, <laughs> the one, the one Babylon At which point they're no longer a concurrent player, they're just a current player. <laughs> that's true. That's a good point. Steam should have updated the category just for that. that 0. Player. 0.5 concurrent players. I, I really <laughs> love a concurrent player. And, and, may, and maybe this will get a laugh here because I feel like... It, I made this joke elsewhere on the internet and it was underappreciated. And so I'm going to try it again on this podcast. So there was that article about the one Babylon's Fall player, the only player playing this, this online multiplayer game, uh, which, which is sounds, very sad to me because it's a platinum game. I'll just say, right. Like it presumably there there's, you know, we all hope there's actually something going on in this game, but by all appearances, uh, no, actually there is, there is nothing going on. And nonetheless, uh, a few things happened with that game in the last few weeks that are noteworthy in the news. I'm just going to talk about the news. I haven't played this game. I don't know anything about it, but I find this very amusing. One, uh, you got your game news. Game news. <laughs> your, uh, get, wait, your game news that is also a recycled joke that <laughs> recycled joke. already told us didn't work in a That's different right. context. Gamers with glasses, you're home for jokes part two the second the, the, the sequel to the, to I'm, the I'm gonna lay joke. out a lot of content hey, for this look at least we're not netflix at least we're not like hosting the most recent transphobic stand-up that's you know. true we're Ooh. not we're not doing that all right we're we're just listening to don's recycled um jokes with with all of the setup that that is with promised. with all of the setup and maybe, yes. maybe that was the issue maybe it just didn't have all of the setup the problem with jokes that bomb is usually that they were lacking 10 minutes of setup all right and, exactly, now that exactly. the problem. and now that we've had that 10 minutes gone. <laughs> <laughs> so so first square enix had to say that they were actually fully confident in this game, in those words, so as to avoid being uh, in danger of breach of contract by saying that the game was actually terrible. And uh, in true Square Enix fashion, probably performing, quote unquote, below expectations, because everything that Square Enix releases performs below expectations, according to them, which is why they have just sold off things like the Tomb Raider license. Yes, uh, I'm sure that that's doing better than Babylon's Fall, and yet not enough for Square Enix. And yet, magically, they are fully confident in this game. Uh, next, two of the uh, lead designers, uh, the director of the game at Platinum Games uh, for Babylon's Fall, uh, published an article on Square Enix's website, a, a, a puff piece about all of the great updates and wonderful changes that they've been making for Babylon's Fall. And they think that everyone will really enjoy them. You know, they're graphic overhaul better draw distance text stuff but movement stuff whatever and i thought that that would be great news for the babylon's fall fan (laughs) 
<laughs> God, I think your problem is that it's not actually a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a small problem, you know. You can... <laughs> also, uh, I think I've gotten games mixed up, and uh, Square Enix actually had to say they were fully confident in Bell and Wonderworld. Ooh, which is yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they're just not they're no, not that's right they did say that a lot of success over there with right. uh, with these yes. releases are they after it was apparently Wonderworld leaked Wonder that World? yes Balin Wonderland I believe uh was the one where the designer of the game left the project a year before it released oh, or boy. something like that or oh boy um, they are fully confident over yes, there fully confident. they stand behind it <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. So now that we've done Don's, uh, I, I have a joke I'd like to do, please. Oh, no. Now, I, I haven't told this anywhere else. So I'm breaking our gamers with glasses tradition of only doing recycled material. Um, but this is a brand new one that I think you're both really going to like. Uh, and then Christian, <laughs> Christian, you can tell, you can be the judge of whether Don's joke was was better or or mine um or you know now that this I'm, is kind of similar to having you drink a bottle of ketchup <laughs> <laughs> now that i've learned that the website has a comment section oh, we no. could have to ask the listeners to decide um are you ready listeners it's in your hands to weigh in are are, are you both are you ready i'm ready for the joke <laughs> Okay. Ready is one word. I, I'm not. I'm not ready for this. Knock, knock. Who's there? Elden Ring. Elden Ring who? Elden Ring the doorbell next time. I barely heard you. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that had the structure of a joke, I suppose. <laughs> All right, folks. So due to unforeseen technical difficulties, this podcast is transitioning to a monologue cast <laughs> featuring only me. It's the Christian Haynes Gamers with Glasses show. Yes, yes. <laughs> the technical difficulties here are that I'm podcasting with broken people. <laughs> Oh, uh, God. Oh, no. Speaking of broken people, one of the games I've been playing uh, <laughs> is the most recent game by the developer that also brought you uh, In Other Waters, uh, an interesting sort of exploration game on an alien planet where you play an artificial intelligence. Uh, basically, it's user interface to game in a lot of ways. Um and the developers jump over the age, but I believe that's actually mostly just a single person, but I'm actually blanking. It, it's out mostly Gareth Damien Martin. Thanks. Yes. I knew you would know. Uh, so full Damien disclosure. Martin. Sometimes I wrote right for their publication too. So there we go. <laughs> and, you know, um, I like citizen sleeper a lot. Uh, it is a game in which you are playing a, person who is a, an android essentially but 
this person was once a biological person that sold themselves to a corporation that uploaded their consciousness into this android, but then of course retained ownership of their body and they escape. There's very much a kind of like fugitive slave sort of vibe that's happening there. And um, in this way, it sort of belongs to a long tradition uh, that certainly dates back even preceding Blade Runner, but Blade Runner is probably the most well-known example of understanding androids as analogous to slaves. Um, and it is a it is a good game that I do think is not necessarily a great game. It is a game in which it is very text-heavy, very much has a lot of elements you'd associate with the visual novel. Most of it takes place in a space station. It's a kind of post-revolutionary situation. It was once a space station controlled by a corporation. They overthrew the corporation. Now it's this kind of like very much um, kind of Babylon 5 style ramshackle place that's kind of hanging together by threads to some degree, has its own kind of culture. Um, it's not a utopia or anything, but it's got a lot of different sort of interesting factions with different social views. And I think that the writing in the game is actually really strong. Uh, it has great personal elements of sort of just kind of struggling with ethical choices, everything, you know, from like, do I help this worker potentially, you know, get on this lottery to get off the space station that involves actually babysitting their kid uh, versus do I help this other person like hack into this organization and feed information to a faction that may do things that are pretty drastic, right? Um, where I think it falls short a little bit is that where In Other Waters was very much user interface the game, but it committed to it. You were almost literally playing a user interface because you were the AI associated with this, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, almost like scuba system. Uh, kind of, yeah. It, it, yeah. It's an AI that um, is a person also working for a dystopian sort of exoplanet mining company. Yeah, uh, she arrives on on this planet um, for reasons that are essential to the narrative, and uh, we, we don't have to go into in other waters too much here, I guess. Uh, and she finds uh, on the planet this novel artificial intelligence that can interface with the dive suit that she has from that corporation, as well as other systems that that the corporation has provided, uh, in, including like the lab and hab thing that's the main base for the game right. in that and you can sort of yeah. uh, as the ai one of the coolest things in other waters is just in between missions you can see all of the floors right. of this undersea base but you can only really see them as blueprints and you can see the the you know main character the main human character sort of move in the lab and and sometimes she addresses you sort of elliptically through journal entries that she knows you're reading. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes she addresses you directly in the dive suit, which has sort of a very limited, like, you know, you can say yes or no uh, with like, you know, a, a one or a zero or something like that. Um, and and there's a, a really interesting relationship that develops between this human character and the AI in, in other waters. Uh, and, and I wonder now, I've played a little bit of a few hours of Citizen Sleeper, but Christian, I, I wonder about how you're thinking about that comparison between the AI of In Other Waters and, and this mind 
in Citizen Sleeper. Yeah, so my sense here, and it's more of a mechanical sort of thing rather than anything to do with the narrative, because I actually do think the narrative of Citizen Sleeper is quite strong. I think the writing's even a little stronger than Another Waters, um, and I actually quite like the art. Uh, Hiring an illustrator was a wonderful move, and the illustrations are fantastic. Yeah, and it's great, it's consistent, it's just the right amount of illustration. Um, Where I think it maybe falls short is it introduces these tabletop role-playing game elements, including very explicitly dice, right, like digital representations of dice, uh, which are essentially function as a kind of resource that you can sort of accrue and that diminish. And then you have sort of some basic stats. The stats don't feel all that important or all that relevant, but you can sort of make use of them. It's not the kind of game you're probably going to spend a ton of time min-maxing. By the way, I did talk to a grad student with whom I work who is actually trying to do that with their second playthrough. Um, And it just feels a little bit, I don't want to say like it was slapped on, but the tabletop elements feel a little superficial like they're not adding a ton to the game ultimately this is a resource management game a kind of like time and energy resource management game how much can you do in each cycle and essentially what you're doing is you're looking at a bunch of countdown cycles and seeing okay what do i need to do first like what consequences potentially going to arrive with some serious negative consequence if i let this timer go out versus like how much can i accomplish you know, for, for example, like hacking into the system to find out more about the corporation that's trying to hunt down my body. Right. Um, again, I think narrative is strong. I think it's in a strange sort of like limbo zone where it's kind of trying to push itself beyond certain limits that sometimes get associated with the visual novel, but doesn't maybe go hard enough in that direction, if that makes sense. Um, and I'm not quite sure what I would want. And I don't want to play like backseat developer as it were. Like I don't have like these very specific things I imagine that could be implemented, but there just seems like there's a bit of an overlay on top of a visual novel that raises the question of whether or not this could have just been a visual novel. And I'm still trying to process that or digest that. If that makes sense. It, it kind of does. Like I, I see where you're coming from with it but I really like how the dice are implemented in Citizen Sleeper. Uh, in, in mostly why I really like uh, the way that the dice are implemented is because they're, they're linked, like you said, to the sort of more essential parts of the game, which are time and energy. Uh, and you, you have two different types sort of, of energy that are always ticking down and they're kind of interrelated. There's like the day-to-day you have to eat And then there's the long-term, your body is decaying without a special compound because that's part of how this company maintains control over bodies. Uh, You can't just flee because they rely on having this compound that, uh, in effect, I I think links the mind and the android vessel together uh, without, you know, it it rejecting the whole thing. Yeah. And that's Uh, a great narrative sort of mechanical link there between the like countdown and the, you know, that chemical that needs to be ingested that drug yeah and and it provides a lot of motivations to you know engage on the station and build relationships with characters because these are essential things um that you need in order to perform any actions at all uh and and they are they're linked to the dice in a way that i also appreciate Mm. 
which is that if you have full gauges of both of those resources, then you have the maximum amount of dice. Right. And as they go down, you can have fewer Looks, and fewer yeah. and fewer, uh, which affect not only the number of actions that you can do, but the dice uh, themselves determine how successful your odds are of completing a given action. Yeah. And, and that's, so that, that's a way, okay, the, the dice mechanically, that's interesting. What I like much more about that is I, I think that it works very well with the classic disability metaphor of spoons. Uh, for, for listeners who might not have previously heard the metaphor, uh, sometimes uh, people with disabilities refer to, you know, difficulty in being able to, you know, navigate day-to-day life depending on the day. Uh, and there is a, a game that sometimes gets introduced, I, I think, sometimes very early, I think as early as sometimes elementary school, where you're given a number of spoons and each spoon you can use to do something in your day. Uh, but the number of spoons, depending on, on what kind of day you're having, can be very different, right? You can be having a shitty day and you just have one spoon and then you, you use it getting out of bed and then you're out of spoons and it sucks. In uh, some days you have more and, and you're feeling better and you can do more. And uh, the dice work just like that. It's, it's, it's a great the same, connection. Same, yeah. uh, mechanic and it's, and it's bodily related and it's related to bodily decay over which the player character has no control. They, you know, they, they cannot help that their body is constantly in this state of decaying. They can only try and, and navigate the circumstances of being in the body that they have. And that, that's what I was getting out of that connection uh, narratively. And I think that as, as uh, something consonant with the mechanics, it really works because, and the dice give it that additional mm-hmm. bit of chance beyond just having, oh, you have six action counters. Well, yeah, you have six action counters. If you're feeling great, you might be able to do six things. That doesn't mean you're going to be able to do all six of them well, though. Mm-hmm. That's there, you know, that that's where yeah. more luck comes into it. You might be able to do six things, but what if you roll four ones? You know that what tracks. it is? I, that you know what it is, I think, is that I think what I want more of from it is you know, the dice have this quality of like there is a kind of almost like power by the apocalypse, like you know, three levels of success or failure. So it's like failure, partial success or success. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, But that simply ends up processing it mostly still in binary terms. Right. It's not like different text options come up. It's not like, and so, Mm -hmm. you know, it's hard not for me to compare this to something like Baldur's Gate two, or, you know, to use a more recent example, Disco Elysium or for that matter. Um, And it's not fair, right? It's like, these are very different scale projects, even the Disco Elysium, which was still made by more than a handful of people's reasonably large team in comparison, even though it was quite a small It is a studio studio. Yeah. It's still a studio, right? It's not like a solo developer working with some contractors for art and music. Exactly. (laughs) And so it's a little not fair, but at the same time I see these dice and I'm like, okay, like options are going to open up or if like something happens, it's not just going to be like this or that it's going to be this, 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 or this, Mm. you know, it's not going to be like success or failure. It's going to be like, Oh, these different possibilities open up. In other words, I suppose what happens is I want that kind of like 
responsiveness that you get from a GM, from a game master or a DM, you know? Because it's a dice mechanic. It's a yeah. role-playing game mechanic. Yeah, so I think it's, a, it's maybe a problem options. of like, yeah, maybe it's like mismatch of expectations there, right? And and so maybe that's on me in that case, I would say, because when it comes down to it, it's still a really interestingly written game. Um, you know, I've seen some people talk about it in terms of like cyberpunk and Honestly, like, I guess I can see why it shares some themes, but I think it's much more interesting than most cyberpunk games that have been released in 20 years. Um, or more interesting than just like talking about cyberpunk at all anymore. Yeah. We've already done that on this site. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes we're done. Cyberpunk can, can, I, can I ask a question, Christian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you'd mentioned before we started recording that you'd also been uh dabbling in some like one player uh tabletop stuff right and i was curious how your experience with this game kind of relates to to that since in here it sounds like you maybe find yourself kind of pining for uh, a gm or at least in now that's not right that's not what you said but but looking for some kind of game function that fulfills something like what a gm does but it sounds like you've also been been doing some some solo rpg stuff lately that's kind of similar to what you're describing actually you know what i would say um you know, so I, I feel like I've been mostly doing like prep work for solo role playing more than like solo role playing. Although, you know, a lot of these like books that are coming out and stuff about solo role playing games are all about understanding every like moment in even just getting ready to do it as part of the gameplay, right? Like everything is the gameplay, um, which is actually an interesting philosophy. But what I would say to get like really nitty gritty for just a moment, um, one of the things that solo role playing games really thrive upon are just tables dice tables like tables upon tables descriptive tables like you know double d6 tables in which you're like you know one row like the rows are going to be like a terrain and the columns are going to be like some adjective to add to a terrain so like dusky plains versus like shadowy mountains or something like that you know and then you can like great way to get people to tell you their birthday on the internet too tell me tell me your month and yes (laughs) exactly and so you know wait and and the difference between dusky and shadowy is like you can only have huge it's huge (laughs) Huge. no but so there is something about like yeah, just like the kind of, it's not about the absence of constraint so much as about the complexity of constraint, right? And so I think what's happening here in this game is that I feel like sometimes it's a bit too much of an either or instead of a series of ands or a series of ors, right? Like it could be this or it could be this or it could be this. Instead, most of the time it feels like in Citizen Sleeper, it can be this or it can be this. And I think to be fair, I would also need to play it through another time to really get a better sense if that's if that's correct. Um, I'm just not seeing a lot of paths opening up, um, which maybe is how I'm playing it too. But yeah, so that's I would actually strongly recommend this game to most folks. Um, oh, I, I think, would too. Yeah, I think it's twenty or twenty five dollars, and it's you know it's not super expensive. It's going to be different than a lot of other stuff you're playing, besides the occasional grammatical error that I would only notice because I've spent a lot of time grading English papers. Um, it's really well written. 
uh, it has a nice consistent writing style. Um, it has a voice, right? It has like a singular voice that I think works a kind of like space noir kind of thing going on that works, I think pretty well. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's the game that I think is most interesting that I've been playing. And yet, if you ask me what game I've enjoyed most in the recent weeks that I've been playing, it's probably Lego Star Wars, the Skywalker yeah, saga. Because you're having fun. Because video games are supposed to be fun, god are damn they? it. I guess <laughs> yes. And I'm I'm the uh, I'm the just kill Melania guy. And Mr. I, fun guy has has entered the room. I am ready to advocate for having fun while playing video games. This is and a serious podcast. We do not have fun. We do not have fun out here. This is a no fun zone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. This is because we only tell uh recycled jokes or or knock knock jokes um <laughs> here. But uh, yeah, I, I, so I'm only speaking and I know this is not the same because I've read about the differences. I'm only speaking from my own experience of the, uh, you know, the, the GameCube Lego Star Wars games. And, And I know that there are some real big changes and updates here, but I, I still think that three more movies. Yeah, yeah, but 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 I think the camera and the combat are also a little bit different yeah. based on on what I've read. The camera is much tighter. Yeah, which is a big. <laughs> that was something that needed to happen. Um, but the the joy and fun of those games is absolutely just a a oasis. You know, I I think to to me. Yeah. I mean, just there's just so many weird, funny little details, and it's not an open world game proper. It's a series of hubs that are pretty intricate. Some of which are more intricate than others, but it's just like all of these ridiculous details. Like when you're escaping as Leia at the beginning of New Hope, you know, and trying to escape the ship, and it like follows all the way through her escape, you know, and then follows all the way through R2D2 and C3PO's escape. Uh, or her failed escape, I should say. Um, and it's just like, you know, you run by like stormtroopers who are in a hot tub when you open up a door, you know, and they're in a hot yeah. tub and they're like, get out of here, you know, <laughs> or, you know, there's just like all these just silly jokes that play definitely to kids, but also to adults. And then on the other hand, it still has those moments where like, because it's a tight over the shoulder view for the most part not like super tight not quite uh what are those games gears of war tight or mm. you or know, god of war like tight for that or god matter. of war tight the most recent yeah. god of war it's always a it's always a g blank of war yeah exactly we're getting. <laughs> but 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 you know reboot or not reboot most recent god of war on um not the older <laughs> ones which do zoom out um because it does that it can then also zoom out in a meaningful way and then yeah. make everything go silent except that Star Wars music. And it has the soundtrack, you know, the full soundtrack. And then you get the feels a little bit, right? Because it's like, it actually does the moment on Tatooine with like Luke, you know, being there like in the desert and it zooms out from his shoulder and you see like the horizon and the moons and the music starts playing and it actually moves you. And then it like, zooms back in and there's like a fart joke or something yeah you know? and it's just like yeah yeah i needed this 
you know, and I can play it around my daughter. I can play it around my two about to turn three year old daughter and not worry about her asking me, you know, what decapitation is. It's when you, it's when you cut the head off. It's when the head just gets lopped right off with something. I would 100% have asked and been answered at that. Yeah. Yeah. To quote the American version of the office is when the Kappa gets detated. <laughs> oh dear. See, see, and see, you that's a recycled joke. That's from, a recycled that, that isn't joke. even an original recycled joke. <laughs> that's from somewhere else. At least mine that wasn't a joke mine. <laughs> so I know you guys are not gonna believe this. I know you're not, but I made up my joke while Don was telling his. No. And I know no. that that's really hard to believe. And, and I understand that, but that's just how but, but the delivery was works. so practice. And we're so not polished. all born with it. We're not all born with it. This what is, are you um, saying, Nate? What I'm saying is that I really, truly did grow up on, on Lego games. Like the, the it, Lego games, and I'm not even talking Star Wars. I'm talking like if we go all the way back to like the first game that was called Lego Island. Right. And, and and it was a first person. I don't even know if you could call it an adventure game you had because you couldn't leave the road. You just had to walk on the road. And I played all of these games just like crazy. Uh, The Lego racers where you could build, you know, your own car and it didn't matter at all how you built it, it would drive exactly the same way for the most part and all this kind of stuff. And so it's a little bit interesting to me to think about how the Lego Star Wars games are about Legos, but more or less in only an aesthetic way. Like there's nothing in my opinion, which I will throw out there to see what other thoughts there are, there's nothing specifically Lego about presenting Star Wars in a cartoony and, and humorous way. And it's interesting that these are the most popular games that you can get out of the Lego people right now that I remember spending a lot of time playing games that were based on building. The idea was that you were building, they had a, a they would often rip off other other games. They had a zoo tycoon or a roller coaster tycoon sort of rip off called Legoland where you build your own, but it was always about crafting or creating something in some way. And the Star Wars games, I don't know. I, I'm not sure that there's anything necessarily Lego about them other than the very specific sort of slapstick type of humor that they've become famous for in the Star Wars games. Um, but I don't know. What, what do you think? D- does, does the Lego-ness, oh, I, what, what is the Lego-ness <laughs> of Lego Star Wars? I think I question. agree. I think at this point, it's more of a tone in respect to some kind of like esteemed IP than it is anything else. I will say that one of the things that's interesting right now Cause like, look, like this particular thing about Lego games isn't just about the Lego games. It's about actually Legos in general and the way in which Legos had this resurgence precisely because they started doing a lot more licensed work Yes, uh, in the nineties. And then it's just continued. 
And so I, I would mm, I would push you into the 2000s there because I remember in the 90s they were still doing uh, Johnny Thunder because they couldn't get the rights to Indiana Jones. Oh, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. Um, but one thing I will say is that actually there are Lego games coming out now, not the TT Game Studio, uh, that are actually bringing the like sort of building quality back mm, in. So there's right, right, there's like course. that game that I think is on iOS and Switch and maybe and maybe PC. Uh, I want to say it's called like Lego Journey. Uh, Lego Builder's Journey, which is a kind of like father-son story told through a series of kind of like Lego building puzzles. And uh, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. That would make uh, me cry. That I, is can, I can tell. I can tell yeah. ahead of time oh, when a yeah, piece no. of children's entertainment is going to make me cry. Yeah. And it's, like it's inside a beautiful out aesthetic too. Um, yeah. And there's another game, and I can't find it for the life of me Googling right now, um, but there's another game that's being made right now uh, that's going to be much more freeform and very much building focused. Um, and it's by a studio that I don't think has made a building game or a Lego game before, but I cannot remember the name of the game for the life. Of Maybe me. Square Enix will make it and it'll perform below expectations. <laughs> I mean, See, if it's it by a Western developer. <laughs> It's by a Western developer. <laughs> Thanks, Nate. <laughs> See, it just needed more setup. It needed more setup. It didn't have enough setup yet. Two more times, and I think I'll have it done. <laughs> a 45 minute setup that time. And it worked. It worked. It worked. It worked. Don, tell us about one of the games you're playing. Uh, well, let's see. So. Yeah, we we can we can take a, a pick out of the grab bag. Um, let let's not talk more about Elden Ring. There's you know words in progress. They'll go about on the site about my uh, adventures there therein. Uh, I've already talked extensively about Splatoon two elsewhere, and that's more of a wind down deal. So maybe not that one. Uh, I've been greatly surprised because for the last week, every day, I have played Gran Turismo 7. Wow. And I I do play a lot of Gran Turismo games. Uh, I think I've played every one since four. And prior to that, I have distinct memories of trying out uh, Ace Spec and, and such at, you know, friends' houses and, and that kind of thing. I wasn't that big into them until I started being a person who owned PlayStations. Uh, and I saw an opportunity on um, a game swap site to get a copy of Gran Turismo 7, which otherwise I hadn't picked up. And as, uh, as a solar tabletop dev might say, Preparing to play the game is part of the fun. I enjoy swapping games with strangers online. Uh, and so I picked up this copy of this game that I, I've enjoyed the series, but at the same time, my enjoyment of them is, you know, it, it fizzles uh, and, I, and it comes and goes. Um, when it comes to things like GT Sport, which was a mostly multiplayer centric offering uh, from the previous generation, there were things about it that I enjoyed. I, I like the way that Gran Turismo multiplayer uh, has an emphasis on driving your best and less of an emphasis on 
competing in a horrible and toxic way with other game players by ramming your cars into them, which otherwise makes uh, online multiplayer and racing games often unplayable. Uh, and, and GT Sport was eminently playable. The trouble was that it also pretty much just locked you into the position that you were going to be in. So there wasn't a whole lot of satisfaction to the actual racing beyond the driving in it. Uh, to do a multiplayer race in that game, you would get a time trial, set a time, and that would place you in your starting position. And your odds of going up or down more than two or three places were minuscule in my experience. I don't think I ever finished a race in first place second place or third place. I don't think I ever even hit the podium in mm. a dozen hours of playing Gran Turismo Sport because also uh, the game can't account for someone like me who enjoys the games enough to play them, but not enough to obsessively play them to the point of optimizing my routes through every racetrack with every car. Uh, and that's by and large who I continue to compete against if I go online in Gran Turismo 7. But now... Because it's a new numbered entry, there's a whole lot more in terms of single player options. Nice. And I think I like how smooth and frictionless the single player mode is moving me in progression more than I've liked any previous Gran Turismo game. Wow. That's right. I heard there were a lot of bumps and kinks that needed to be worked out when it was first launching, a lot to do with progression, online integration. Have you run into any of that? Or do you feel like that got smoothed out before you got into it? I think that those might be issues that I might encounter if I continue playing it every day for the next several months. Okay. And, and I think that that is by and large uh, part of the reason for what, what seems to me an actually justified outcry over things like having certain cars cost an outrageous quantity of in-game currency. And of course you can purchase in-game currency these days. Uh, and, and that did not go well with a series fans of a series who are used to being able to earn in-game currency along a smooth progression to be able to unlock cars and tracks and tune them to their heart's content and do this full car simulation. Uh, there's there's something about Gran Turismo 7 in in play actually on the track which has surprised me which is that by default you sort of start in in the in-car cockpit view you have a simulated racer's arm that you can see on the steering wheel that is responsive to you on a joystick uh, the windshield and, and they fully and lovingly detail the dash windshield wind uh, mirrors everything on the interior of these cars. And in every other Gran Turismo, I pretty much instantly said, no, thanks. My camera view for racing games goes in a third person camera behind the car. I'll appreciate the nicely, lovingly detailed car model so that I can see where my car is relative to other cars on the track. And in Gran Turismo 7, I've never left the dashboard view. It is fantastically responsive inside of that. And uh, feelings that I have of like, oh, it actually does feel a little bit more like I'm driving this car, which That's is cool. kind of the whole actual point of the series, much more so than racing. 
it's putting you behind the wheel of a car that you would in all likelihood never in a million years yeah. be able to actually drive, let alone in these places. And the, that singular fantasy of Gran Turismo is so well realized in this one that I just, I wind up just, oh, what am, what am I playing? Oh, Gran Turismo is still in. I guess I'm playing that. Nice. That's cool. That's my my racing uh, game speed uh, is more Forza Horizon, but I've definitely been tempted by Gran Turismo uh, Seven, and you're making me want to play it uh, very it, much. It so. is. It's pretty. I know that. From from the sound, I I've not played any of the Forza games because no Windows or, or Xbox access. In the same way, we're previously not having playstations i didn't necessarily play gran turismo uh and and from what i can tell they just sound like really different games to me yeah no i think the the one thing that they might share is that like the feeling of being behind a wheel a car you'll never own i Mm. do think i think that gran turismo 7 is definitely a more nitty-gritty version of that uh but then beyond that it's totally different sort of ethos you know um where, you know, Forza Horizon is very much a kind of like toy car sort of thing. Just kind of wheeling around a ridiculous landscape having, you know. Which sounds fun. You no, know, it's absolutely fun. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I highly recommend the last. Well, I recommend all of them, actually. I have all of them and I play them um, because, you know, nice thing about the Xbox is the backwards compatibility. Um, and, uh, but it's not quite the same if you were looking for that like hardcore racing game, just like when people were, uh, uh, what's a dirt racing. Oh, dirt. Just dirt. Uh, yeah, you did it. People were complaining about dirt five because it wasn't like hardcore, like nitty gritty enough for the, uh, I forget even what the specific I mean, rally racing. that, you know, yeah. there's, you know, if you but, want that kind of rally thing where you actually have like the AI chattering yeah. at you in, in wonderfully bizarre and obscure uh, rally racing jargon, um, a patois that very few people outside of people who play those video games and actually race rally cars are fluent in. It is kind of hilarious when you're playing these like rally games where it's like you have to actually learn the vocabulary because so much of it you can only do well if you're able to decipher what the announcer to you is saying because of the visibility. Right. Uh, you know, so it's like you have somebody being like left 30. Uh, hard left that you know just like but like much more complicated than that like because they're going like three turns ahead and you're like am i playing a game or am i just playing a kind of input simulator um yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. i want to play a game where i can simulate the experience of driving the car that i actually own on a racetrack mm-hmm. Like on a cool racetrack, yeah. Like where Gran Turismo you might, might be, be able to do that, that game, right? Do they, do they have a Do they have a Toyota Prius that's missing the front right hubcap? Because that's what I'm. That's what uh, I'm looking for. Depending on the year, off, yeah, they might. Uh. Please, wait, 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 wait. No, this is really important now. This is really important now. Is the Toyota Prius a drivable car in Gran Turismo Seven? 
I'm fairly sure that it is. They, I don't have the showroom in front of me, but they have a Yaris. So if, if they're going all the way to the Yaris line, I'm reasonably the confident Yaris that they have a people, Prius as well. The Prius people and Yaris people, there's a, there's a, a line there that's being drawn. No, is, uh, is there really? That that sound. What are you a Yaris person, Don? No, I, I, about I, this? I I believe, and this is probably something many folks uh, who have been affiliated with this website would say. I drive a Prius, Nate. It doesn't have the <laughs> front hubcap <laughs> off of it, but it did recently have a, its catalytic converter stolen, and I had to go on a whole saga to oh, get that no. replaced. I'm so sorry. That's yeah. terrible. That's terrible. <laughs> you know. I don't know if this is because this is uh, like a lot of my references, just kind of old. And I don't I don't think obscure because I knew a lot of people who played it, but um, not something I've heard us talk about before. My favorite racing game is Trackmania. Have either of you played any of the Trackmania games? I have games? definitely Trackmania. It's just be- and, yeah. and it d- I love it because it doesn't have anything to do at all with driving a car i mean for me it's a (laughs) physics it's a physics game right it it could be a ball that it's super monkey ball with cars yeah it's super monkey ball with cars and that's all it is but it's this sort of endlessly malleable super monkey ball where that depending on your version could have a really good track editor people make really cool community tracks and upload them all the time i take great delight in uh in in this game still but for i think reasons that are completely different from from what you're describing with how much you're enjoying gran turismo which i just think is interesting it's an interesting difference it it's unusual to me to enjoy a gran turismo in this way this much Mm, um yeah i i find myself having i i had a, a very like this is the intended Gran Turismo experience. And I was nerding out a little bit about it just last night. I was in a challenge where I was collecting BMW M series cars. That's the kind of thing you do in single player Gran Turismo. Someone says, I would like you to race on these tracks and you'll unlock these specific makes and models of vehicles and to add your collection. And uh, to do so, I had tuned a uh, 89 M3 BMW uh, to compete with 2000s eras uh, models of the same. And uh, I had apparently progressed far enough into the game where they were like, okay, we're going to start to take some of the kid gloves off and you won't be able to simply overpower the other cars in the track Mm. by buying tuning parts and equipping them. Um, And what it turned out uh, instead, my situation was, was that uh, I had slightly more and better maneuverability than the 2007 and 13 I, and assorted other models that I was racing against. Uh, so if there was a track that had a lot of twists and turns, there was a good chance that I was going to be able to overtake them. And if it had a lot of straights, I would be, uh, you know, my my i would have great difficulty i just simply right. couldn't go as fast those those right. those dang straights there you know we got a lot of issues with them uh and uh i was waiting for it i was waiting for it <laughs> it's too easy uh and uh i in in that moment i went oh wait no that intended thing where the car you're driving and the mechanics of that vehicle 
actually matter to what I'm doing on the racetrack and how I looking at the track, even before I start driving on it, how I anticipate the race will go and what I will need to do to be successful in a race. It actually matters in this moment, in this video game I'm playing where part of the setup is, yeah, that stuff is supposed to matter. Every car is supposed to feel different. The way you tune it is supposed to affect how you actually drive on the track. And it did. It was amazing. Yeah. It that happens really so cool. rarely. Now, do you feel like the like really fine-grained sort of tuning and just tinkering under the hood, digitally speaking, is necessary or is it a kind of opt-in thing? Like you can enjoy the game even more if you get into that, but you can also play the game and enjoy yourself without doing that kind of thing. Uh, well, a couple things with that. So, so first is it wouldn't be necessary if you purchased or uh, otherwise acquired the right vehicle to race it. So in this in this way, I was purposefully using a vehicle with less power and tuning it up to be able to compete with these, these other vehicles. Um, the second is the tuning in Gran Turismo 7, and this is something I imagine uh, past series fans probably dislike, is much less granular than in, in previous series entries. Yes, you can still do things like, you know, down to adjusting angles and, and tire pressure and things like that, but that's broadly unnecessary compared to just going through tabs and thinking, yeah, if I have racing brake pads and racing tires instead of ordinary brake pads and ordinary tires and they cost more money, I bet this car will drive better. And you would be correct. <laughs> Uh, in, in that assumption. So you don't have to be digging deeply in, into okay. gearhead um, to do that part of it. And it makes it, it, it's just an, an added bit of, there's just an, it is that lack of friction I was talking about, right? There's just enough so that I look at a race and I think I'm going to need a little more. I'll put some better stuff right. on the car that I need to use to do this race. And then I do, and then I'm more successful in the race it's great that sounds great yeah um yeah i'm i'm always find myself with like forza and a handful of other racing games i play like i'm willing to do lower the tire pressure when it's like you know what is it lower the tire pressure when it's rainy to make sure i'm not like sliding off the track as much but like that's as far as i'll go right like Beyond that, I just don't want to think about it. I just want to drive the fast car. I haven't even had to do that, really, in Gran Turismo. I could, and maybe the more I play, I'll encounter situations where I, you know, should do that. But so far, in in a dozen hours of playing this game, uh, yeah, the the most I I come up against is, uh, do I need the full exhaust manifold on this, or or will the one that's cheaper uh, thing back? you know, will that give me enough? <laughs> so, you know, minor segue, I suppose. Uh, the game that I've been playing with the most driving and it's uh, is not Star Wars, but is rather the tried and true Sleeping Dogs, um, which yes. is a game with a kind of like funny history where it started off as part of a franchise and then sort of spun off of that franchise. Um, but it is a crime drama set in hong kong it is in some ways a gta clone but i think the parts from it enough uh has a good interesting cast with you know folks like lucy Liu and stuff um 
does an interesting thing where it mixes like English and Chinese. Uh, it sort of just goes back and forth in a way that Cantonese it clearly in works. particular. Yeah, like, Cantonese. Which, which yeah. is excellent that they went with that voice acting given the setting. Yes, yes. And it, it's interesting because it's like, you can tell it's facing a Western audience, but also trying to sort of negotiate between the things. And in a certain sense, the main character kind of echoes that being in between different sort of places, cultures, different sort of pushes and pulls, but it has like, you know, level up system where you're an undercover cop. So you could level up as a cop. You could level up as a, you know, gang member essentially, but it actually has a decent story and it's just fun to play. You know, it's like, imagine GTA, but if GTA had like a, could like karate or kung fu system actually integrated into it which mostly just resembles like arkham asylum style combat to be honest oh yeah um, yeah they 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 just took they went oh you know this sort of third person hand-to-hand brawling feels yeah. really satisfying and what if instead of batman we yeah. did that with uh infernal affairs uh exactly. and i i really really uh, have a soft spot for sleeping dogs for a variety of reasons. I'd go so far as to say it. It is. I, I prefer it to every GTA game that oh, I yeah. played, uh, and and most games in that category. I oh, I, I, I would do a lot for so a much sequel. Fun. I would do a lot for like a sequel, but in like a GTA style sequel. Like it doesn't have to be a follow up storyline wise. You know, throw me back in Hong Kong. Like switch things up a little bit like make good on everything that was like a little clunky, just smooth it out. Give it that, you know, beautiful UE5, like Unreal Engine 5 or even UE4, you know, sure. you know, graphics and just like run with it. Yeah, we're, we're, we're on a budget here. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are. We are. <laughs> what I'll that probably was... get is just like a fan mod that's made all with like cheap assets from the, you know, Unity store or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they keep the voice acting and and the jokes and, and some of the localisms, That's um, I I would I would still probably love that game too. Yeah. I'm not surprised that you like it because it, it very much also has a lot of the charm of a Yakuza. Yes, <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, uh, Yakuza, but you can drive, uh, and it's in Hong Kong, which and, uh, and 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 the the representation of Hong Kong is really fun in that way that that sometimes games developers are are getting increasingly better at where they will take not just recognizable large landmarks but recognizable neighborhood landmarks or shapes even down to to the ways that that uh street layouts differ in between neighborhoods um and uh and it just lends terrific character to the game um, down to being able to take, you know, you, you can hop in a speedboat and go to outlying islands on the map. There's nothing to do on these outlying islands, but Hong Kong is an archipelago and, and it's wonderful. And that is a thing you can do. Uh, and it is a thing that Hong Kong people do. Uh, and it's, it's just great that you're even able to do it in, in, this, in this game. And there's loads of touches like that in sleeping dogs not everything is granular and realistic and oftentimes it's more of the uh, the cartoon version of hong kong down to that representation of kung fu down to the collectibles and you know street level incense uh, shrines being part of of the collectible uh thon as it were but 
Uh, but I, but I love that too. I love the way that street vendors for food, uh, shout slogans after you going down the street, uh, in English and in Cantonese. Um, it's, it's touches like that, that make it, I think, uh, just a fun, a fun time. Um, I, I don't, I don't regret any of the hours I spent playing sleeping dogs. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a square Enix game, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Did I think, it, I'm trying to remember if they ended up picking it up and publishing, or if it really? was, or if it, they let it go. It was one of those. I mean, like given their history, it seems like they probably let it go. Um, yeah, I was just wondering if it met expectations. Oh, it did not. It did not. <laughs> well, that's probably because they thought it was going to be, you know, GTA Four. Uh, oh, I'm hmm. sure. Or GTA Killer. Yeah, that's because because that happens so so often. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I've never played any of this. I'm I'm I've yet to find the game that makes me compelled, uh, feel compelled about being a crime boy. I just I don't I don't I don't know because in real life I'm not particularly lawful. I don't pay parking meters, but I I just I don't want to. <laughs> that money goes right to the cops. No way. <laughs> But but I, the, gamers the and glasses podcast where we admit to petty crime. The cops in my midwestern love town you, bought themselves. Thank you, Christian. I love you too. The cops in my midwestern town bought themselves a bear cat a couple years ago off of money that included money from the parking meters. And I said, absolutely not. I'm never paying another parking meter again in this town, and I don't. And I just move my car around because I know where the parking cops are going to be. And I make sure that they never catch me. They haven't. I haven't gotten a parking ticket. in. So you're too busy years. playing this IRL. Yes. Here. So I'm doing this in real life, but it's just with parking meters. Um, but I don't know. I've, I've yet to find the game. I honestly even kind of bounced off of like the both of the the red dead games a little bit. Just because mm-hmm. I was like, ah, like, I don't know. I, I don't your thing. Yeah walk around and beat people up and hurt them, which I'm not saying necessarily happens in this, what sounds like a really cool and fun game that you're describing. I haven't played it, so I don't know. No, but there's some of that. I think you're right. There is some of that. There is some of that. There definitely is a kind of like softening of what you might get in a GTA because you do have that frame of you're an undercover cop and therefore there's a kind of like principle behind it. You also have like a kind of like vague principle of honor. Oh yeah. The cops, like, the good guys. Yeah. That really fixes. <laughs> Wait, isn't the honor on the triad side? It's yeah. Like but, triad, well, I think that's interesting is the something. alibi works two ways, Nate. Right. Yeah. Like it's on the yeah. one hand, you sort of like absolve yourself of like the kind of crimes that like, frankly, like aren't helping people because it's like protection rackets. Right. right. But on the other hand, you also get to sort of, have an alibi for being a cop and feeling bad about that because you're also like, well, you're really more connected to your neighborhood you grew up in, which was why you're the going undercover with this group because you actually knew these people when you were growing up and really like, it's all about community. Right. So it does give you a kind of weird, like double out depending on where you're coming from. Just sort of ingenious. Or you could say in bad faith. Uh, I don't feel like playing a cop or a triad gangster, which I think would be perfectly valid. Yeah, I mean, you could the game would certainly let you do that. You have to avoid all the quest markers. <laughs> yeah, no that that sounds that sounds really good. That It'd sounds... be like Nate, you know, when you went off and was it Oblivion that you went off and just played priest? 
Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Hey, do, do you folks want to do uh, non-game recommendations or non-game chat for a little while before we wrap it up? Sure. Like what people have been messing around with? Yeah, I'm down hey, for that. Do you have something uh, yeah. that's been like floating my non- my non-game, yeah, yeah. My non-game recommendation this week is abolish the Second Amendment. Just get rid of it. <laughs> Just it's done. It. <laughs> We're done with it. It didn't really even make sense in the 18th century, and it definitely doesn't make sense now. And it is time to lay that to rest. Why, Nate? You're Second. sounding like Beto O'Rourke there. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Who would uh, who would have thought? There are honestly like I'm kind of embarrassed. At the the number of things where I look at I look at Beto's time in the music scene and I'm like oh boy, there's uh, there's there's some hard truth staring both of us in the eyes right there yeah. uh, about uh, about our younger selves and uh, what we what we believe to be the most radical things we could possibly do, um, but uh, um, I I'm trying to kind of figure out uh, that okay. That is a real recommendation. Yes. We should all do let's, that. Yes. Um, let's and, actually and, and, have gun control. Yes. Let's have gun control. Let's also have unions um, uh, for just like everything, <laughs> but like real unions that aren't uh, corrupt and messed up. Um, and like sort of uh, the, the, like you hear uh, old, older sort of stories. Let's have unions that are for the people um, and, and run by the people and not run for profit for anybody. Um, and let's do, I don't know. Uh, so here's here, what I was going to do for summer is read, actually sit down and read the wheel of time books. Oh, wow. Um, because I am kind of, you know, I, like we talked about a little bit before, uh, we, we started recording, I capped off at least a draft of my full dissertation. So I have a little bit more time, although that's all going to be spent, uh, sort of hunting for part-time jobs to fill in the gaps in my unfunded, um, summers in this program. Um, but I, I just, I, it's something that I'd been meaning to get to at some point for probably a really long time, honestly, like since teenagehood talking with my other Tolkien geek friends who would be like, Hey, you should really, you should check out Brian Sanderson and you should check out Robert Jordan. Um, and I, I don't, I'm still kind of figuring out where I'm, where I'm at. I'm at about page 700 or so in the eye of the world and boy oh boy does it take a long time for anything to happen in that book i mean a yeah. really truly long time wait till they get I, to I like a thousand pages each with like 1500 perspectives that every story is told from yeah i wrote a scathing book report on that book when i was in the <laughs> sixth grade scathing yes. <laughs> and and see, the, the, I so the, badly want to just record an episode that is just Don reading that book report aloud. I would love that so much. I, I wish I could find it uh, now that I said it, but but it it had a lot to do, Nate. With what you just said, uh, it was 
it took forever for anything to happen. And uh, the archetypes that are being used here are unoriginal and, and better done elsewhere. I mean, I would, I, I really tore into it as a sixth grader, man. That's really good. I mean, archetype <laughs> is an important sixth grade word. Yeah. Um, but, uh, oh <laughs> but I, I, so I'm, I'm figuring out, I'm figuring out kind of where I stand. And if I feel like I have 14 books of this in me, because the thing is that I do really find it relaxing to just kind of chill and read like a not super fast moving um, high fantasy series, but there's also just, there's so much other amazing stuff out there. And I'm kind of like, ah, you know, there's, I'm reading this and they're there. I've read the broken earth series, but like there's NK Jemison books I haven't read yet, you know, and maybe yeah. that would be, just be a better use of my time. Um, uh, Becky chambers also wrote a second monk and robot book, which I'm really, really, really excited about. Uh, I, I can't wait to dig into that because I love to Psalm for the wild built so, so much. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of figuring, figuring out how I feel about like, on the one hand, I do feel like I am tapping nostalgically into a summer reading version of myself gotcha. that a long time ago would check out all the Redwall books, right? Um, by uh, Brian, what's his name? Jocks. Yeah, yeah, Brian Jocks, exactly. Um, that, that also were... Well, I, I guess I can't say for sure that the Wheel of Time books are um, predictable and sort of pattern centric, but but the Redwall books certainly were, right? The oh, yeah. Redwall books were very. It was it was very uh, many positive book reports for me on the Redwall books. Yeah, but but they were <laughs> they were they were formulaic in a way that still brought you into the characters and made you interested in the world and made you care about them and, and want to follow them around and sort of read them do very similar things over and over again, you know, Oh no, the weasels. Oh good. The badgers showed up. They're really buff, you know, and, and this kind of stuff. And, and <laughs> badgers so, are so cool. They are, they're amazing, right? They're every some, time the, some of my favorite, I, what I would give to see like a well done animated Redwall series mm. would be really something. Um, like a so rotoscoped Russian animation version of the Redwall book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally um, psychedelic. And and it, as it deserves. Yeah. Um, there there are some graphic novels which are which are by and large pretty good. Uh, I think they're they're cool. But anyway, yeah. I, so uh, anyway, I'm trying to kind of figure out if Wheel of Time is how I want to spend that much time or not. There are definitely bells that it rings for me, and frankly, there are bells that uh, I haven't allowed to be rung in a while because <laughs> I've had this dumb dissertation, which has made me do serious reading and made me feel like reading has to be serious and hard to enjoy um, for a long time. And uh, so I'm I'm wondering if maybe what I just need to do is learn how to enjoy like a book that that has some some formulaic stuff in it and has some characters that could be described in three adjectives or less, you know, and, and maybe there's something to that that uh, that's a little bit like um, 
a little bit like a Bethesda RPG <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that I could, I could learn to enjoy the expansiveness of that. So the next time we do an episode, I'll, cause I bought, I, I committed, I bought the three book uh, box set. So I have oh, well, to read yeah. the first three. And so by the next time we have a, we have a podcast episode, I'll, I'll have more to weigh it on if I'm going to stick with wheel of time or not. Very cool. Um, maybe just following off on that, I guess maybe my recommendation is a book I'm about two thirds the way through. Uh, that is one of the best things I've read recently. Uh, and that is a book called Mordew, M-O-R-D-E-W uh, by Alex Phoebe, P-H-E-B-Y. Uh, and Mordew, which is a kind of play on uh, Mordew, so like God is dead, Uh is you know kind of gormangast philip pullman's amber spyglass uh it's very much like a philosophical fantastic fiction in an urban setting it has a dinkensian quality where you're following like slum kids around who may have more interesting destinies but it's also incredibly grotesque a little bit Cronenbergy, a little bit Jeff Vandermeer. I should say I initially picked it up as part of uh, the work I'm doing for my next book, which is mostly on weird fiction, ecology, and biology. And so uh, I've been reading a lot of that. And this book just kind of popped up on my radar. And it's just a delight. It is got weird, complex characters. It has a hundred page glossary in the back. Nice. But you don't need it. Right. Like the book that it doesn't like feel like this thing where you're constantly referencing terms. And in fact, it even tells you probably not to look at it till after you're done because there are spoilers in the glossary. But the glossary is just these like philosophical disquisitions on the world of the book. But the book, like there's no like huge info dumps. It has the perfect ratio of like world building to just mm. storytelling in it. And it, um, yeah, it is about a child trying to save his father from an illness um, and discovering his own powers while he's doing so. There's a bit of the inversion of the hero narrative that's going on. Uh, it's about prattling around in the sewers and stealing and heists. And yeah, it's great. And I'm bouncing back and forth between that and... Uh, Jeff Vandermeer's Amber Green novels. Uh, oh my and, God, and, I love this. Yeah, so which are so much. good, which is another recommendation. That's Cities, City of Saints and Mad Men, which is the first volume of those stories, um, which I would just describe as uh, anti colonial fungal fiction. Um, Have you read all three of them yet, Christian? Yeah, a while ago. I, have the, okay. I, I actually picked up a new edition just to have. Right. An excuse to read it again. Because um, in, in Saints and Mad Men, I mean, you've barely even gotten to Fungus yet. Like, yeah, Fungus yeah. is coming. Fungus yeah, was, is coming for well, you. Fungus is returning, right? Yes. So it goes, it's settler colonialism, colonialism, anti-colonialism, um, dystopia. Uh, Man. Kind of. And it's uh, sort of sort of runs through all the genres, including like swashbuckling, fantasy fiction, 
uh, noir detective, very much sort of reminiscent of, uh, you know, a kind of, um, you know, big sleep, a Chandler or something. Um, but yeah, all of this is to say I'm reading a lot of weird fiction for book research, uh, which includes some Lovecraft, but I'm mostly focusing on folks that have sort of picked up on that legacy or preceded it. Folks like Arthur Machen, folks like, uh, you know, uh, Clarkton. I'm also reading through Robert Howard's Conan books a bit. Oh boy. Uh, and I've also picked up uh, some my father's one of my father's favorite book series that we read together when I was younger, which is the Dark Tower series, which I haven't nice. read uh, since whenever the last book in that series came out. Um, it's the last time I read it. So yeah, that's what I'm up to. A lot of reading. Yeah, watching some TV, but nothing worth talking about except maybe <laughs> the second season of The Flight Attendant, which is quite good. So yeah. I think the narrator of Shriek might be my favorite literary narrator outside of Dostoevsky. Like I, I just absolutely love that character so much and everything that she brings to that role that she's taken for herself, Um, which I realize is going to sound really unnecessarily cryptic to anybody who hasn't read the book yet, but just, I would second Christian's suggestion that it's you kind of got to read the first one first, but uh, the the second book in that trilogy yeah. was something really special to me. What I'll say is, if folks have read any Jeff Vandermeer, the most likely thing they've read is the Southern Reach trilogy or maybe the Bourne novels, and it's really interesting that he as an author has quite a range of styles, or at least two different extremes. What you see in Jeff. Vandermeer's like Southern Reach trilogy is mostly a kind of like more clipped prose style with straightforward sentences, even as they're about weird things, right? Um, relatively short sentences, things like that. What you see in the Ambergris novels are these long 19th century style sentences with verbose narrators that are reminiscent of a Dostoevsky narrator, like a, you know, whether it be a you know, I don't know, notes from the underground kind of narrator or something and uh, crime and punishment. Um, and so if you bounce off the Southern Reach trilogy as friend of the podcast, Alinda Chang did, uh, or I actually think she got through it, but just barely as she put it, uh, it might be worth checking out the Amber Green novels. So again, my suggestions in reverse order, Jeff Vandermeer's Amber Green novels, starting with the city of saints and madmen, um, and which is a you know wonderful 19th century novel written in the 21st century, uh, and Alex Phoebe's uh, Mordew, M-O-R-D-E-W, which is a kind of wonderful urban fantasy, grotesquerie, fantasia uh, by a guy who's one of whose other novels is a novelization of freud's writing on uh the judge schraber who is his case study for psychosis that's me dodd take us home good recommendations i i have a tv recommendation oh thank god this time enough Uh, with books courtesy of of my partner i should say I've been enjoying the later seasons of Sailor Moon Crystal. Oh, wow. 
I enjoyed the earlier seasons as well. I thought it was a decent enough update on the beloved original. Uh, wasn't as thrilled perhaps at some of the changes to art and music, but they've grown on me. Uh, and at this point, uh, there's been some patchy fast forwarding as my partner has probably watched an uh, intervening season or two without me. And, and she's seen all of these a million times as well as the manga. And she's currently getting back into collecting trading cards uh, in a nostal nostalgic exercise to recapture the ones that she had as, as a youth. Uh, and so we've been watching, uh, continuing, I should say, to watch Sailor Moon Crystal. And we just got to the outer planets uh, being introduced into the show with uh, Uranus and, and Neptune and Pluto uh, and then Saturn, which, you know, the, the order there is is significant, significantly uh, out of order. <laughs> Uh, in, in relation to the way that they are introduced in the narrative of the show. Uh, and there is so much to like about the Outer Planets uh, in Sailor Moon. And I think Crystal does a better job of having them be uh, as they were originally written compared to originally localized for U.S. audiences. For example, the incredibly hard butch Sailor Uranus and uh, his, her slash alter ego uh, gives a repeatedly uh, fantastic references to how Uranus has both uh, masculine and feminine aspects. And uh, so does she. And she doesn't see any reason to choose between the two as they are part of her power and protection from that astral body. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, she's uh, a badass teenage race car driver uh, in uh, her alter ego. Uh, and, and Pluto uh, and uh, Neptune and Saturn are, are similarly fascinating and have a ton going on, um, which makes them wonderful additions to the better known inner planet crew uh, with, with Jupiter and Mars and Mercury uh, and, and Venus. Um, and of course, the ever useless uh, embodiment of our beloved planet Earth, Endymion, slash Mamoru, slash Tuxedo Mask, uh, who continues, as usual, to be useless. Although I did see him in one episode, very recently, fire an energy beam out of his hand, uh, which I think is the first time I've seen Tuxedo Mask actually attack an enemy instead of using a smoke bomb or simply wave his cape. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was in the middle of a group attack, very JRPG style. So it's unclear if that actually helped at all, uh, or if it was just the rest of the sailor scouts, uh, doing things to defeat this major baddie, but you know, there you are, the, the, the earth is, is in there too sometimes. Um, and, and just as a whole, I, I've been greatly enjoying it. And, and just to wrap things up on some other themes that we have about, repetition and narrative few things are as repetitious as an anime specifically a magical girl anime that has transformation sequences a significant number a comical number of runtime minutes for every episode is given over to transformation sequences and if you haven't seen uh later episodes of sailor moon either the original or crystal you might be thinking Wait, if they do a transformation sequence and it takes a really long time for the inner planets and then they add more planets, does that mean even more minutes of every episode are devoted to transformation sequences? Yes. The answer is yes. So many, so many minutes given over to transformation sequences. But I really think 
that this is the kind of thing where it's like in music, where if you have something that happens in a really short period of time and it only happens once, it has a lot of punch. And then if it happens a few times and the song gets dragged out to like four and a half minutes and it starts to repeat itself, you kind of are like, eh, this repetition isn't doing it for me anymore. But if it happens over and over again for two consecutive hours, you're like, oh no, this got really good again. And transformation sequences in Sailor Moon with all nine planets represented, wonderful. Would watch for hours and have. And I guess the last thing to say about that to bring us full circle is I think it's worth noting that Square Enix was actually the company that brought Sailor Moon into the United States television networks. And then in fact, at one point they were developing a game based on it, but they ended up not releasing it because they didn't find uh, that their expectations for the television show were satisfied. It didn't meet expectations. And on that note, and that completely <laughs> false thing that I have just said, <laughs> we are done. <laughs>